0: Host, Dr. Christine Sufjak, and today we are joined by Dr. Megan Simpson, who is a pediatric cardiology fellow, and she is going to be helping us learn about cardiac shunting. Thank you, Dr. Simpson,
1: for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
0: <laughs> you may remember Dr. Simpson from our episode on myocarditis and pericarditis, which was way back in season one. So we are happy to have you back. And without further ado, today we're going to talk about a really kind of confusing topic to a lot of learners, which is the topic of cardiac shunting. So what is cardiac shunting?
1: In essentially the most basic terms to understand it, kind of on a global level, intracardiac shunts are basically an abnormal connection of blood flowing in the heart, either in place of or in addition to the typical pathways of blood flow. And extracardiac shunts are similar, but essentially just outside the heart, Um, like a connection between the pulmonary artery and the aorta, which are vessels outside the heart. um, And that's essentially what a patent ductus arteriosus or a PDA does. Physiologically, um, what we refer to as a cardiac shunt is something that connects arterial and venous blood flow directly.
0: Okay. So basically a shunt is another word for blood flowing, In a way that it's not supposed to flow.
1: Yeah. Like a shortcut.
0: Like a shortcut. And that can be many, many different things. Yeah. So shunting is kind of an umbrella term, I would say.
1: A hundred percent.
0: Okay. And so we have a couple different categories of what we would call maybe shunting, right?
1: Yes. And in cardiology, there's really two types of shunting and if we're going to say shunting overall as an umbrella term, these are the next two big categories of shunting you could categorize things in. So there's right-to-left shunting, and there's left-to-right shunting. So right-sided and right-to-left, meaning from the venous circulation to the arterial circulation. So essentially, when you're having a right-to-left shunt, blood is bypassing the lungs because typically blood would flow from your heart, to the pulmonary bed, and then back to the heart, and then it would go to your body. But when there's a right-to-left shunt, it just goes from the body to the body. <laughs> it goes without so that- ever going to the lungs to get oxygenated.
0: And so those babies are blue.
1: Yes, which we call cyanotic babies. And they are they do tend to have lower SATs. If you were going to have normal saturations for any patient um, over, you know, uh, several hours old would be in the mid-90s or so these babies have um, blood saturations as low as the 80s or 70s or even lower, depending on how big their shunting is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the five main types of cyanotic heart lesions that we ch- tend to teach, there are many, many, many kinds of right to left shunts, but the main five kind of cyanotic heart disease phenotypes you should recognize are um, I don't know if you guys ever learned the mnemonic, the one, two, three, four, five mnemonic, but um, each number stands for and correlates to a type of cyanotic heart disease. So one is truncus, where there's one common vessel coming out of the heart. So the pulmonary artery and the aorta are essentially combined. So that's a obviously for obvious reasons that's a right to left shunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two is TGA, which is transposition of the two vessels. So you have the aorta and the pulmonary artery are swapped. So you essentially have two circuits running in parallel okay, and not connecting. Um, and those babies tend to be blue as well. Tricuspid atresia is the third one, which is basically poorly formed tricuspid valve or abnormally formed tricuspid valve. That's in a severe enough way that the right side of the heart is severely deficient. And so those children are also cyanotic. And that tri meaning kind of like three is a good way to remember it. Four is Tetralogy of Fallot because the four factors of Tetralogy of Fallot kind of are what we use to recognize the syndrome. And then TAPVR um, is the acronym, but it's Total Anomalous Pulmonary Venous Return. And so those patients also tend to be cyanotic. So those are the five main kinds of like cyanotic heart disease that in some way, in some form have right to left shunting. And some of them are more complicated than others, but that is... I think is enough for you guys to know that those babies will be tend to be blue. Mm -hmm. Um, So Tetralogy of Fallot is like a a kind of a, uh, I think one of my favorite and one of the more commonly known examples is basically the four things that compromise Tetralogy of Fallot is having a large VSD. So a ventricular septal defect. So that's a hole um, in the ventricular septum that makes it so that the right and left ventricle have direct communication and overriding aorta, meaning the aorta is actually overriding the VSD. So it's sitting over the defect instead of being more committed to the left ventricle. Um, and then you have a right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. And this can be at the valve level, like the pulmonary valve. It can be subvalvar, It can be supervalvar. Anywhere along that kind of um, outflow tract area can be have some kind of obstruction. And then you have right ventricular hypertrophy. And so those are kind of the four things that make up the babies that we would diagnose with tetralogy of fullo and those babies tend to be um, have lower sats not always but they tend to have them um, mm-hmm. um,
0: because if they have a right ventricular outflow tract obstruction basically there's stenosis or something that's blocking right sided outflow into the lungs
1: yeah exactly and so
0: in that way your blood is not going to go as easily to the lungs and then would shift over to the left side of the body and skip the lungs which is why you end up blue.
1: Mm -hmm. And so all of these lesions have different reasons why, but essentially in the end, the bottom line is that blood isn't properly going to the lungs and then getting routed back to the body. um, And they end up being blue babies.
0: Okay. So we have our right to left-sided shunts where we skip the pulmonary vascular bed and end up blue. And then the left to right-sided shunts, which is sort of a different... Bag of
1: defects. Yes, it, it is. So that that's when blood flow goes from the arterial side that's oxygenated and it shunts to the venous side that's deoxygenated. So these babies don't aren't blue because the blood, you don't have purple blood going into red blood essentially and making them blue. Examples of this are going to be isolated VSDs with normal systemic vascular and pulmonary vascular resistance, or um, you could have ASDs that do this. PDAs do this, but it all kind of depends on the downstream systemic vascular resistance and pulmonary vascular resistance. So, um,
0: yeah, I think that's a good point. Like a lot of these shunts and defects, you know, it depends on your relative pressures because blood is always going to flow to the area of least resistance. And so certain things like PDA, like what you were just mentioning could go either direction. Yes. But in a classic sense, if you have normal systemic vascular resistance and normal pulmonary vascular resistance, usually your systemic is going to be higher. And so you would steal from the systemic and
1: your blood would preferentially go to the lungs. Exactly. Steal from the body. Exactly. Um, So like she said, blood is kind of, we say blood is dumb because it just goes to the place of least resistance. And so... Which is not always the best place for you. No. To have it. (laughs) It's not. Um, And so... In that example of a PDA with left to right shunting, you would have over time pulmonary overcirculation. So with every cardiac output, there'd be more um, blood flow going to the lungs than the body. So they'd be pink babies, but they it would be at the expense of blood flow to the body. And so these babies, over time, can develop respiratory distress because of all the increased blood flow to the lungs. They can get pulmonary edema because of that. Um, They can also get, in extreme and more severe cases, they can get acidosis over time, depending on their lesions, because of essentially left to right shunting that's prolonged and severe because the blood flow of the body gets to be inadequate, essentially.
0: So if we have these two categories of shunting, you know, I think what's kind of difficult about this is that there is this classic definition of shunting, which is just blood goes somewhere where it shouldn't go. Um, but in the hospital and kind of like when you're, you've got your feet on the ground and you're in the cardiac ward or something, when people say shunting, it can mean a couple of different things. If you're in the cardiac unit and you're describing a baby who is shunt dependent, you may not be describing an ASD, right? You right. you have kind of a classic picture in mind. What, what does that normally look like when you're in the cardiac unit, um, and describing A baby who is shunt dependent?
1: That's a good question. So shunt dependent babies and are kind of, it's sort of like a red flag term in a way where once you hear the words shunt dependent, your ears perk up because those babies are really high risk for decompensation. And that's because having a shunt doesn't make you shunt dependent. Um lots right. of people live with some element of shunting, VSDs, ASDs, PDAs, um, and babies have a, a lot of those things and have no issues for long for long periods of time. But shunt dependent means that the one of your circulations, pulmonary or systemic, is dependent on the shunt blood flow. So if that shunt were to in some way clot off or become to change in any way and to have um allow less blood through it um you would have an essentially an emergency on your hands because either the systemic or pulmonary um blood flow is going to be drastically reduced rapidly and you're going to have some kind of decompensation fairly quickly so the kids that are shunt dependent it doesn't mean that their lungs or their body specifically, it's just, it could be either one. It could be either, either one could be playing a role. So in Tetralogy of Fallot, we have babies with BTT shunts, which is the Blalock Thomas Tossig shunt. And that's essentially in a way you could think about it as creating a PDA. You're creating um, some kind of connection between the pulmonary artery and the aorta to augment pulmonary blood flow. So if those babies clot their shunt off, they have very little blood flow going to their lungs, and so they become quite blue and quite sick quite quickly. Um, it's uh, it's in the matter of of seconds to minutes that these kids change. Um, and in um, kind of a, a the alternate example, you could say would be like a critical coarct where their their aorta is so so small that it can't really get sufficient blood flow to their body, but they have like a PDA that's helping augment blood flow to their body. And if that were to suddenly shrink and the PDA were to close, which it naturally will do, those babies become acidotic and lethargic and very, very sick quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So a baby that's shunt dependent, it means that that shunt is important and you need to make sure that it's there and functioning and you need to know that all it takes for them to decompensate is that shunt to not work, which when you think about it is kind of a risky situation because shunts are highly prone to clotting or changing in some way that would change the blood flow significantly.
0: Okay, so that's something not everyone who has a shunt is shunt dependent. And people who are shunt dependent are people who you take special consideration when you take care of them.
1: Yes, because then essentially patients that are shunt dependent, the blood flow through the shunt is dependent on the, like we had talked about, the downstream resistance of the pulmonary and systemic vascular bed. So anything you do to change those things will change the hemodynamics of that shunt.
0: Got it. Got it. And so when you are getting, let's say you're a resident and you're getting sign out and you hear about a child who has shunt physiology or more specifically who is shunt dependent, are there certain things that you want to do or not do for those kids compared to, compared to others?
1: Yeah. I think first of all, just it, it's hard because honestly, the world of congenital heart disease can be incredibly complex and each baby can be very different in their own way. So even if you really understand the textbook presentations and um, lesions, each baby can, can have a very complicated picture. And so it's it's hard to come into that situation and understand every detail. Mm-hmm. But if you can try to understand in a shunt dependent baby, what is dependent on the shunt? Is it their pulmonary blood flow? Or is it their systemic blood flow? Because that will cue you in on the signs to look for for decompensation. Whether, like we had talked about, if it's a pulmonary um, blood flow dependent shunt, desats, like cyanosis, kind of the respiratory distress and things like that that you would expect with reduced pulmonary blood flow. Or on the other side, acidosis and... Like kind of appearing like you're in shock, um, which would be um, a systemic uh, shunt dependent baby. So that's good first of all, just to get a general idea of of what you're gonna look out for if, in the worst case scenario if their shunt were to not work. And then two, just be cautious with cert- the medications and therapies that can change the systemic or pulmonary vascular resistance. Like oxygen is a famous one that in most babies without congenital heart disease coming in with bronchiolitis or pneumonia or something like that, it wouldn't be a high-risk situation to put them on 100% um, fraction of inspired oxygen. That would be something that you could do if their SATs were low while you figure out what's going on and you stabilize them. Cardiac shunt-dependent babies, if you put them on increased FiO2, uh, like 100%, that is a pulmonary vascular bed dilator. And so it decreases the pulmonary vascular resistance, and it can have a big effect on that. And so it would cause increase left to right shunting, whether or not you want it. Maybe you do. Like in Tetralogy of Flow babies, when they have a quote unquote TET spell, whether, you know, we do what we can to increase blood flow to the lungs. So we put oxygen 100% on those babies. But in babies that you want to encourage blood flow to go to their body, you probably wouldn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're already over-circulating their lungs, you don't want to make it worse. Even if they're in respiratory distress, giving them 100% of oxygen is going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. So know, you know what their physiology is and what the ideal resuscitation FiO2 is for that baby, which is going to be different.
0: Mm-hmm. So classically, if we don't want pulmonary over-circulation or if we're at risk for pulmonary overcirculation, we would cap their FiO2 at about 50%.
1: At the most, if at not the lower. Most. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent agreement. <laughs> That's so
0: confusing. <laughs> yes. We 100% um, agree that you would cap them at 50%. <laughs>
1: um, if you kind of use as much as you can get away with. So I think, I think it all depends, like I said, on every situation. And there are certainly babies you would use more, but in general, you try to use the flow of air. Um, to help them with their respiratory distress and use a lower FiO2 if you can, even like 21 to 28% if you can.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. I think that's like definitely a clinical pearl because it's very, very easy, especially if you're a resident and you're on call and it's overnight and you're tired and you're juggling all these different cardiac babies. Let's say you're covering the cardiac floor to order oxygen. It's always helpful to have that in the back of your mind. Like everything you do has a consequence.
1: Yes. And these babies are just different. Yeah. um, Their physiology is a little, I hate using this word, but it is an accurate way to describe it, but it's a little dumber than some. (laughs) So they're not, you know, the blood flow really needs your encouragement to go the right places. Okay. And then uh, other things you guys aren't going to get into are, you know, things that change systemic vascular resistance, which outside of the ICU setting, you typically wouldn't be using. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like pressers. Exactly. Um, and which we do use to manipulate this kind of thing in the cardiac world, but you guys won't be, you know, needing to do that. I'd say oxygen and FiO2 is the first thing that everybody who's meaning well could easily do. And even if you're trying to help this baby, it's easy to put on hundred percent FiO2 and maybe hurt them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that's the pearl.
0: So don't do that.
1: Don't do that. (laughs) And if you have questions, always ask your friendly neighborhood cardiologist that should be on call with you.
0: Yes, totally agree. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Simpson, for being here.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much for having me.
0: This is a really great episode. I think this is something that I know for me personally, very much confused me starting out in training. Um, And so I hope this episode is helpful. Again, this is MD Notified. I am Christine Suvchuk, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.